the worst day of my life and now it was the best like it literally set the stage for exactly where I am now and I'm, I'm very grateful I was not grateful when I got there but I'm grateful now welcome to stories of recovery a Mar recovery resources production from Mar addiction treatment center I'm Matt Shebb in this episode you'll hear from Caitlin who talks about coming to Mar as a 20 year old in the midst of grieving her mother who had recently passed away from cancer Her father was also diagnosed with cancer, and he passed away while she was in treatment. Despite all the grief and loss of this period of her life, she was able to remain sober throughout, using the tools that she learned in early recovery. When she got to Mar, she was resistant to identifying herself as an alcoholic and didn't want to be in treatment. But when she finally surrendered and accepted the help that was offered to her, she found a life starting to be laid out for her that she couldn't have imagined. Here's Caitlin. My name is Caitlin Stowell, and I came through Mar in 2008. I arrived on August 6th of 2008, and I have been sober ever since. I now work in the treatment industry and have for the last six years for a place called BRC Recovery in Austin, Texas. And my boss is actually one of the ladies that I went through treatment with. After high school going into college, that's when it really became a problem and people started to notice and I started to have to kind of try to hide how much I was actually drinking. And it's my mom actually got diagnosed with cancer when I was 15 when I started drinking. And what I remember, because there was a lot of surgeries and that was kind of when everything really changed. There was no more dinners at home. There was a lot of hospital visits and surgeries. And I just remember feeling very different than everybody else. But when I was drinking, it was like everything else was forgotten. We were on even playing field and it didn't really matter what was going on at home. So, I mean, it was my escape from the beginning. My mom went into a brief remission and then it came back full force um, during my sophomore year at Auburn. And so I went home to take care of her from January until March uh, when she passed away and That entire time, I did not draw a sober breath. Also, around the time my mom found out that her cancer had spread, my dad got diagnosed with cancer as well. So in order for them to get to appointments together, everybody moved back into the same house. And it was pretty wild. So you're dealing with all that family stuff and loss, impending loss and medical care, along with your um, your dependency on alcohol ratcheting up, which is inherently kind of traumatic, being powerless over a, a substance. Um, how, were you processing any of this at the time? Like, did you know that you had a problem with alcoholism or how, how, did, it, how did it seem to you in the moment? So when I thought of, I definitely didn't think that I was powerless over alcohol at all. I remember drinking in the morning and saying, to myself, I'm not an alcoholic because I don't need it. I want it. And so when I came in, I thought people in AA didn't want to drink. And I was like, that will never be me. I want to drink. The problem is, is that I, I want to want to not drink, but it, it just never happened. And so it took somebody really explaining to me 
what was going on for me to really get it and look back at my experience and see. But during that time, it was, I'm depressed. This is a bad cycle. Look what's going on. And if anybody said anything about my drinking, all I had to say is, look what's going on in my life, my mom, my dad. And so I kind of confused people where they would think that it was just how I was dealing with things and that it was a phase and, it, and I would get over it. My brother sat me down before I went back to school after my mom passed and he had a conversation with me and he said, you know, alcoholism runs in the family. My aunt was a drug addict. My dad, quite possibly a functioning alcoholic. Um, you don't want to go down that path and whatnot. And I said, okay, I know, I know I got this. I'll get it together. And he told me later that people had wanted him to send me to treatment then. And, uh, but he was like, no, it's going to be fine. She'll get it together. And then I went back to school and what really made it clear to him was when my friends from college who I was on spring break with, uh, at this point I'd been drinking I would hide it, but I was in my room drinking most of the day, all day, every day. I needed it just so I wouldn't detox. I mean, it was at this point harder to stay sober because of the shakes and feeling so bad and whatnot. And they were worried about me and I knew that. So that's why I kind of hid things. But we were on a spring break trip to Key West and I don't even remember drinking that much, but it, it was to the point where I didn't know how much was going to get me drunk. Sometimes it would take a lot sometimes a little, because I always had it in my system. And I woke up the next day at three o'clock in the afternoon. And they told me that I had had a 0.6 alcohol level, that I was rushed to the hospital. Um, I, I was foaming from the mouth and my organs were shutting down. And they were terrified and they torn the, my bags apart for pills and they didn't find any. And I kind of hung my hat on that, like, see, I told you. And they wanted they had to, like, they sat down with me and talked with me and wanted to do something then. But I told them, if you tell my brother, he'll take me out of Auburn and I'll be even more depressed. I'm just depressed. That's just what's going on. And I got back from there and they kept my secret for a little bit. But when they soon realized that it wasn't getting any better, they told my brother and he came and surprised me with my mom's best friend. And they took me home about a, a month later. So even though you were pretty young, your your alcoholism had progressed pretty significantly. Absolutely. Okay. So they come and do that intervention. Um, and is that when you end up going to Peachford? Yes. Yeah, so they drove me straight from there to Ridgeview, first of all. And Ridgeview didn't have any beds open. They only had outpatient. My brother's like, that's not going to work. And so we went to Peachford. And he checked me in and I did the detox there. And then I did their PHP program for like a total of three weeks. So it was like a month I was there. And then they decided that the house where my dad was, I couldn't go back there and live with him because it was the house that was depressing me. So I was going to live with my mom's best friend. And so I did that for the summer and I stayed sober maybe like 32 days, you know, like two days after I got out and then I would drink and every now and then I would get caught. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that I hadn't gotten caught in a while and I had convinced them that they needed to let me go back to Auburn. And I even had one of the therapists at Peachford tell my brother that if he didn't let me go back, that I would be resentful and I would drink over it. 
So you didn't even want that to happen. But I was going back to Auburn on Tuesday and it was Thursday and I drank and I didn't come to till Sunday. And my brother was there and apparently I had called him and told him I couldn't stop, which is crazy because I didn't even believe I couldn't stop. And um, he said, you're going to Mar. And I said, where? No, I'm not. Like, and I started crying, like, please. All I need is a new sponsor and a big book. I attended enough meetings to know that lingo. And um, one of his wife at the time or fiance at the time, family, one of their friends was on the board at Mars. So that's how he found out about it. And I said, just kidding. I'm going to Auburn today. And he said, no, you're not. Your car's in my name. And I admitted to Mar on Tuesday and I was very unhappy about it. So just like everybody else that I've ever talked to going to a gender specific program, all women, we all say the same thing. I don't like girls. I don't like being friends with girls. And we all say that. And I'm like, yeah, I was the same too. And honestly, I look back now and it was some of, it was the good old days. You know, you, you don't realize that you're just like, you're going through such a hard time, but there's kind of some beauty in it, you know, and with those other women. So at the beginning, I didn't want to relate with any of them. And I looked at the differences and whatnot. And it's funny because I always tell people, you know, the community model I love because you'll always trust somebody in the community before you trust the staff, the authority. And that person for me was Marsha. And she had been there exactly 90 days. Um, and I remember her walking in and she looked normal. And so I was like trying to figure out, like, what are you doing here? And she was the first one that told me that I was going to die from this. And I believed her. And I literally just kind of followed her path. I mean, she was going through a hard time and she had lost like her identity with her work and everything. And she really made it attractive to do recovery. And if, if that hadn't been the case, I'm not sure I would have bought in, you know, it's always just that one person that kind of gets you going. And I picked the same therapist as her and whatnot. And so I just remember, like, I really believed her and I believed that she believed and and that carried me through quite a bit. To your point too, about seeing her to like, when you first get in there, I, I hear that a lot from people where it's like, they can relate to someone who's just a little bit, you know, that's just a little bit more sober than they are. They've been sober just a little bit longer where it's like some, you know, maybe like some of the counselors there or, or people you see in the rooms that have, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever. It's like, you can't even conceive of that. But like seeing somebody with like 90 days, that's like, I, I can connect more to that in early recovery than I can someone with like years. Was that your experience? Absolutely. And for me, I mean, she looked like she had it together. And I remember her telling Mm. me, you know, people like me and you, we clean up fast on the outside, but inside there's still a lot to do. And and there's a crack in our hearts and that's how God gets in. And um, our work just isn't as as visual, you know, because I can, we can look like we have it together a few days after, but Mm -hmm. it, we still have a lot of work to do. And what was your experience like with the counselors there at Mar? Were you, did you start to kind of open up and feel more comfortable with them over time? Absolutely. So I ended up being obsessed with the counselors there. I mean, it really, you know, 
I had an attachment to them and with everything going on in my family, um, it, I mean, it's what I needed at the time. And I mean, there was the time where I thought that, you know, if they didn't give me what I wanted, that they were against me and whatnot, but I stayed around and stayed there long enough where I realized that they were, they were out with, they were out for my best interest. And it just took kind of like little experiences. I remember I was trying to get in trouble one day with my therapist and I said, well, I want to do this and this. And she was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, wait, what? You're supposed to tell me that's not right. She's like, no, that makes sense. And um, what I really realized is that the me being inauthentic was keeping me there longer. You know, I'm like, if I tell them the truth, they'll keep me here way too long. It's like, actually, if you don't tell them the truth, you're not going to get down to what you really need to work on and you will be here longer. Was your brother, was he engaging with the family program too at that point? Yes, he was. And him and my mom's best friend came to family week on the impact group. And, um, he was the first one to get up on the impact group. And I was, I was not expecting that, but I mean, that group I think is so powerful and so needed. Can you describe what that is for people that might not know? Yeah. So you're sitting in a room with the family members and the clients and you have to kind of go the whole point of it really was explained to me is you're kind of letting them know you're not crazy. Cause we, we tried for so long to convince them that our lives were true, that this and that wasn't really going on. And so just letting them know, like, this is what I did. And you can't say, I'm pretty sure it's, I'm sorry. Or I, I love you. And you kind of just have to go up. And I just tell my brother that I drank to the point of looking like I was on drugs and I lied to him and I did this and that. And then they come back and kind of tell you their experience. And I remember my mom's best friend. I'm thinking she's just going to be like, oh, you're great. No problem. And she looked at me dead in the eye and she said, I cannot believe the selfishness of this disease. And that was something that hit me hard. And you're about, what, six weeks in at that point or something like or. And how is your father doing at this point? So he's back at home um, and he's alone. And so with the phase system, I was allowed to start going to see him every now and then once I phased to sit phase two. And so I was kind of trying to, they were really supporting me and I was working, doing my recovery commitments and taking my dad to appointments and whatnot. I mean, that, that seemed, that's a huge obstacle for anyone to, to deal with, let alone someone in early recovery. So were you, did you find yourself kind of relying on the tools of, of AA and, and what you were learning to, to get through that? Absolutely. And it, I was never honest or open with anybody in my life about what was going on with my family. They knew, but, and if they asked, I would say, they're like, well, what's going on with your mom? I would say nothing. I would never tell anybody. And I kept everything in. So being able to like talk with people and everybody know what's going on in there to support you, that was big for me. Uh, and having that kind of safe space to come back to and the therapy that is just there for you while you're in treatment. It's you know, when you're out in the real world, no one's going to come up there randomly and say, how are you feeling today? Let's do a feelings check. Mm -hmm. So that all really helped because I couldn't hide. So I ended up going to three quarters 
And I took a buddy and went to my brother's wedding and on May 9th. And then on May 29th, my dad passed away. And I remember that community group um, before, because we would go to that spirituality group. And I remember he was in hospice and I was just very tired from doing, helping him recovery, uh, working and everything like that. And I remember Tiffany looking at me and saying, what do you need? And I said, I need sleep. And she said, you can go see your dad today, but after you go see him, come back and go to sleep. And I said, okay. And I remember he wasn't supposed to pass away that night or anything like that. And I remember leaving and him saying, take care of yourself, Caitlin. And I was like, okay. And before that, we were, we were talking like, I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you. Like mm-hmm. stuff I never talked about with my mom because I was drunk. And I got the call at like 2 a.m. that he had passed. And I went downstairs and knocked on one of the girls' doors and told her. And they were there for me. And going through that and the funeral and everything, the whole staff came to the funeral. I mean, it was really like a family unit kind of playing out. A lot of people don't really realize about coming to treatment at Mar where it's like you are really you really get integrated into this kind of family system and that that carries on a lot of times after the people stop being clients at Mar. It's funny cuz I was just on the phone earlier with two of the other girls I went through Mar with and they're in Austin with me now too and whatnot but like it's like the four of us were like a family and we remember each other when we had nothing. Oh, so you're still in touch with them? I'm still in touch with a lot of people from Mar, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Um, And you were just talking about like when you kind of gave in and, and, you know, thought maybe it could work for you. Like, was there a moment that you remember in particular, like where... Because everyone coming into treatment is pretty resistant and thinking like, well, this might work for other people, but it's not going to work for me. Was there a moment kind of in your time at Mar where you thought, okay, and or, or maybe something started to to feel a little bit different? And the things that they're talking about in terms of alcoholism, you felt like maybe this this could, could work for me too. So two of the moments that really kind of shocked me and made a difference. The first one, uh, looking back, I remember I was very compliant. I was trying to get along with everyone in the community and whatnot. And I was going in for a 30 day review where they go over all your clinical stuff with you and everything. And I'm thinking I'm going to get an A plus and I'm doing great and look how nice I am and helpful and whatnot. And they told me that basically the opposite that if I'm getting along with everybody in a community, I'm not being authentic and honest and whatnot. And that they wanted to see me kind of speak up and challenge people. Um, You know, when somebody comes up with an idea and you know, it's not a good idea from them instead of just saying, Oh, that's great. So they will be your friend, like letting them know, like the truth can save someone's life. Mm -hmm. And so that was a turn for me. And that was hard because it was against everything and me, we're all like, I'm not going to snitch on someone or anything. But I really see now that those people that called me out and I called out, we're still close today. And mm-hmm. you get through it, you comes full circle. But then um, that was about 30 days. And in about 60 days, um, I accidentally used the phone to call my boyfriend. Whoops. They were trying to 
confront someone else, but I thought they were talking about me and I'd been there long enough to know, like, if you don't tell on yourself, it'll be worse. So I told on myself and they basically told me that they'll let me know if I'll, if they're, if I'm going to be able to stay. And for once, like my community, when I remember one of these ladies like crying, like, Caitlin, why'd you do that? Like, you have to be here. And I got to stay, but I remember thinking like, wait, you don't want me here? Wait. And it almost became my decision at that point. Mm. It felt like that instead of like, you're just forced here. So right on out, I started to actually like take suggestions, be honest and, and do things. Taking a step towards recovery instead of away. Right, right. And you and you touched on something just now too that I think is really important. This like this feeling of like wanting to get everything right, like to like get an A plus on all the activities or like to be perfect. But that sometimes like that 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 can be a barrier to really uh, that can that can really be a barrier because then it's like I'm still trapped in my head trying to like be the actor, you know, like the big book talks about. Absolutely. And I did that a lot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was really when I talk to people coming into treatment now, I I pull from my experience and I tell families, I said, I don't want to see your loved one be on time and do everything right. I want to put them in a situation where I'm going to see the real them that you see, you know, when they're not, happy, you know, or or angry about something, because if I just pretend like everything's fine, it's not like real life. And Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is kind of, you know, that muscle memory of learning how to express your emotions in a healthy way and communicate with people in a healthy way in your community, you know? And so I just think that's important and that we, I think the fear is if I don't do this right and I, they know what's really wrong with me, I'll be here longer, like I'll get in trouble or something like that. And it's just the opposite because I, I love when somebody's honest, like, I don't want to be here, you know? And I'm like, that's great. At least you're being honest. And I remember going into treatment and doing my introduction and be like, and they knew that I was mad at my brother at the beginning. And I would say, I was really mad at my brother, but now I'm very grateful. And it was (laughs) authentic. (laughs) Looking back, I mean, I was terrified as of them not knowing what I needed in order to be happy. Like if I listen to you, maybe I'm not going to get what I think I need and want, and I won't be happy. And it's just really not the truth. And it's almost like you think people are telling you things so that they're like trying to make you miserable. Like you can't go back to Auburn or whatever. And then the thing is, is that I know now being on the other side that the therapists have your very best interest at heart. And while you're an individual, they see this all the time and they can really see like what's probably going to be good for you and what's not. And it's not to make you unhappy. It's to make you happy and sober. You know, it's just give that fear of giving up control, which we really never had. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so how long did you end up staying in um like how long were you at mar total 13 months and i will tell you this i started to like be honest and listen but every month 
I had a new plan when I was in three quarters of that I would present on how I was going to leave the next month. And this is what I was going to do. And they didn't even have to say no. The universe, God just struck it out. Like something would happen where it's just off the table. And when my dad passed away, when I had about 10 months, it was kind of like, well, guess I'm here forever. And then I, at 13 months, I moved out with some of the girls into a house, but it wasn't until I stopped trying to get out of there and just like, okay, I'll stay for however long you want me to. Then, you know, the opportunity presented itself where it was a healthy situation for me to leave. And so you move into a house with some of uh, the ladies that you were in treatment with. How long did you live with them? So I lived with them for about almost two years. And then I moved out with one of them. We moved into Atlanta together. And then I was there for about three years. And then I moved back to Lawrenceville for two years. And then um, moved back to Atlanta and then to Austin. Okay. So Marsha hired me and she said I was going to be in marketing. And I just remember that I knew a couple people that had um, come and tried to like take me to lunch when I was working at Mar. And so I reached out to them. And really, I mean, people, places like Mar and BRC, it's really nice because I don't have to sacrifice what I believe personally for what I do professionally. So it was kind of like stuff we've all been doing the whole time, helping people. Of course, Mm -hmm. this is your job and you have to still do it outside of that. But it was eye opening to kind of see the whole different side. And, you know, you put all the, your therapist on a cap on a pedestal and like being behind the scenes, it's like, Oh my goodness. Um, but I mean, growing up, if you said, Caitlin, you're going to work for a, a rehab. I'm going to be like, no, thank you. You know, mm-hmm. it's not anything I ever would have thought, but I mean, it's, it's been the joy of my life. I mean, I love it. I get to do stuff like this. I get to, really help people and kind of be out there and be a voice that, Hey, listen, where you go to treatment matters. Cause I think there's a lot of times, you know, my experience with Mar, I needed that exact experience. And if somebody had just done what I said and sent me to an outpatient or something like that, I wasn't the type that that would have worked for. And so it's really nice to guide people and really believe in what you're doing and get to lay your head down at night, knowing that, you've done your best and you you didn't have to compromise and I'm not living a double life. I'm not saying I believe in something that I don't. If someone's listening, who's thinking about coming to treatment, but is kind of on the fence and like, I don't know, that sounds pretty vulnerable. I've got my career to think about. I've got my, or or maybe they're, maybe they're, they have kids at home. What would you say to them to, um, yeah. What would you say to them? I always tell people, you don't have to want to do it. I just need you to be willing to take the chance. If you wait for when you think that you're going to be like, yes, I want to go to treatment today and it actually happens. I mean, that day might never come. So trust the people around you that are guiding you and just take the leap because the things that we put in front of our recovery, like, oh, I can't go because of the kids or this or that people end up losing anyways. So this really is with your best interest at heart. And you can really recreate your life to something you never even imagined. I think what I tried to do 
for a little bit in early recovery was trying to get my old life back. And I sold myself short because recreating my life has been so much better against everything I ever thought and whatnot. And just kind of going with what's presented and doing the right thing. I mean, I haven't been let down yet. Really amazing to me that you were finding the tools of recovery right when you were going through all this difficult stuff with your family and all this loss and grief. Um, it's just, wow. What, and, and really inspiring that you were able to stay sober through, cause it wasn't over by the time you got here, you were still kind of going through it. So it just, that's really inspiring. Thanks for sharing that with us. Absolutely. I think of it now when I was, I remember my first sponsor saying, well, look what God's done for you this first year. And I was like, well, my dad died, this, that. But looking back now, it was like, you really can't, I could never have made this up just like how everything was perfectly in place. It's like my house was caught on fire and they got me out right before. There was a time when I was bitter and I've told someone that I don't really believe that resentment and gratitude can coexist. You know, I've wanted to be grateful, but just been resentful and not been able to get myself out of there. But when I look around, I mean, of course I would give anything to have my parents around. Absolutely. But the life I lead today, like there's nothing, I'm not lacking anything. My brother and his wife, I have two nieces. They trust me with them to come take care of them. You know, we're finally on even playing fields. I had I'm just going to go, I guess, go ahead and put this out, but a wedding, you know, I got engaged and how am I going to pay for a wedding and whatnot? And, um, I got a call and Marcia said, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for your wedding Wow. and put it on. I mean, just all that stuff. And I have so many, God has never like left me. I mean, there's so many people in my life. My brother's in-laws have taken me in as their own since, since I was coming to Christmas from being in Mar, you know, getting like a therapeutic leave. So there's always been amazing people in my life. And I just had to kind of open my eyes up to see it. I mean, I think when you're doing the work, um, it's just bound to happen. You know, if I sit here and think about what I don't have, um, I mean, I could play that one out too. I mean, I remember when I was in Mar, I said, I'm alone in the world when I was still going through stuff. Cause I mean, I, it wasn't, completely pretty after all that. And, sure. and I could convince you through all the things like that I was alone in the world, but I'll tell you what, I am definitely not alone. There's a lot of people that love me, but even more, there's a lot of people that I really love too. And I mean, that's even better. You got a pretty full life. It sounds like. Yeah. It's, it's not bad. Okay. So my last question is from all the hard won, you know, wisdom or knowledge that you've gained in your recovery, what would, if you had to pass on one thing to people that are listening, what would it be? I just love, I know it's corny, but I love don't quit before the miracle. You know, my first year was really hard. It wasn't pretty. Uh, there was a lot of loss and I stayed sober and I have a beautiful life today because I continued to practice these principles. And even when, even when it hurts. And I think the most important thing to do is, like I said before, you don't have to want to just be willing to go and be honest. And I mean, 
I mean, it's just one of those things like you're never going to lose something by going to treatment. There's only something to gain, you know, to get that experience and connect with those people. And I wouldn't trade my experience for the world. So if you're thinking about going to treatment and you, you listen to this and you want to go, go now, the window Mm -hmm. is short. You will talk yourself out of it, but um, trust those people that love you and kind of see that, you know, like I said before, this disease is selfish. I had a moment where I realized if I was to drink, I would, the only person that ever wants me to drink is me. I'm literally so selfish going against everybody. So you can do it. And um, it's okay to know that this disease is something you can't handle on your own. Thank you so much, Caitlin. This, what a beautiful story. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's great hearing your story. Thank you so much. It's an honor. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our executive producer is David Tate. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Caitlin for sharing her story with us. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes of Stories of Recovery, you can help us out by posting a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us reach a wider audience. And we'd appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you next time.